podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Club football returns, but Manchester United seem to miss the memo. A poor performance at St James's Park is rewarded justly with defeat. Eric Ten Hag's substitutions have come under fire, and so did most of the team's players, to be honest. And Newcastle leapfrog the one and only United into third. Much work to be done. A very warm welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast with Harry Robinson and Jack Tate. Despite the result, it's lovely to have you with us, so thank you for tuning in. As well as reviewing Sunday's Premier League defeat, we play guest the player, preview Wednesday's home match against Brentford, give you extensive updates on our loanies, the academy sides and United women who have had another very good weekend. And in the middle of the show, our patrons will get their bonus Q&A. If you're interested in hearing that, go to our Twitter at UTD Weekly Pod to find out more. It's always good fun, that section. We've got some really interesting uh, questions this time, which should uh, kind of extend the conversation on the Newcastle defeat and the wider big picture stuff a little bit further and in a little bit more detail. But before then, let's get stuck in. Jack, what were your immediate thoughts on the Newcastle game? It was frustrating. At the end, it was it was almost baffling because of how the way and the manner in which United ended the game, wasn't it? It was. I think the first half in particular, it was disappointing, but I think not that surprising. It was sort of what I expected. From A very post-international break first half, wasn't it? Yeah. And I, I think I tweeted this to someone during the first half. To be honest, it wasn't that dissimilar to the cup final, other than the fact that we didn't score the yeah. two goals. You know, that is pretty much how we approached the, the cup final game as well. It was the second half, and especially after we conceded, that I think was so disappointing because at no point in that game did we ever look like getting anywhere close to to scoring. And I think for all of United's kind of faults this season, you know, the away form hasn't been great, as we'll probably come on to in more detail. We have at least looked a threat in most of those games. Mm. And yet this was really poor. You know, Vekors had one shot into the side netting in the first half. Anthony had one really tame shot that was straight at Nick Pope in the second. And that was it. Sabitzer had one run into the box where a shot got blocked. None of Lots those of you would say were... Chances, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and none of them really came from sort of sustained periods of pressure. At no point in the game did we put Newcastle under the kind of pressure you would expect given that we were chasing the game. That was one... Of, yeah, that's, that's maybe one of the... Well, it's not the weirdest thing because the subs were particularly weird. But uh, before we move on to them, one of the strange things was... You're right, we never had... Well, there was a very small period just before the subs, actually, where we just started to kind of build those sustained attacks. But for the rest of the game, they just weren't, they didn't exist at all. And yet we also didn't counter with that much pace. We sometimes tried it, but particularly with Anthony and then later on with Sancho, we didn't really have that pace going forward. And and a lot of the time we'd get to, we'd get to kind of the edge of the final third and then have to come back because we didn't really have, we didn't have that full on energy and commitment to the counter-attack. And then it would come back and then Newcastle would reset their defence and, and get their structure together. So we, I guess that's that's kind of part of the entire game. We just didn't seem to have real conviction in what we were doing. And so I think as a as a fan watching either in the away end or at home, it, it, you didn't really get a, a clear sense of exactly what United were trying. And you compare that to the cup final when it, it, it felt kind of, you, you, you knew what United were doing. You compare that to most of the games this season. I say most, but not all. And yeah, it was it was very different. He didn't really know what Ten Hag wanted from his team, and whether that's the players' fault or his fault, it, it's always going to be nigh on impossible to tell. But it's certainly the case that it wasn't really clear what we were going for. 
There was there was a point in the first half, I think around half an hour into the game, when it was the first time United had really got their foot on the ball. And, you know, we didn't really do much with it. We weren't exactly, you know, slicing through Newcastle, but we kept the ball for a minute or so, strung some passes together, and it felt like, okay, we've we've clearly come, come to St. James's, tried to sort of soak up the early pressure, take the sting out of the game. Un- fine, understandable. It's not exactly the, the kind of football you want to see, but you know, against a good team at home in a very big atmosphere, understandable. But we never then did the second part of that way of approaching the game, which is that, great, you you sort of take the sting out of the game, you try and soak up that early pressure, and then you dominate the game yourself. Then you grab control of the game in possession and you start to really impose yourself. But we never did that. We After doing that, you could say we did the hard work in the first half an hour, although even then we... Newcastle had, exactly. We we only managed to take this thing out of the game because of some bad finishing, really. But okay, you say we got through that part of nil nil, and then we just slipped back, especially after half time, into those bad habits that we had in the first half, and completely let let Newcastle back into the game. It was yeah, it was it was just really really poor from United. I I've, I struggle to remember a United performance that was worse in possession than that in quite a long time. That was a lot of it, wasn't it? It was the and it's always quite hard to find the cause for that. Sometimes it's lack of quality. And there were, I mean, we've all seen the occasions of that with, whether it's McTominay or Fred in midfield over this season and in, in past years, that not the kind of simple passes, obviously, but those ones where it's kind of the decisive pass and a counter-attack where you need to keep the flow of the move going. We've often seen McTominay and Fred kind of mess those attacks up. And I think we saw that again with McTominay. But Bruno Fernandes is even his short passing was, was seemed off for a lot of the game. And so it, it, whether it's a matter of focus or mental weariness or whatever it is, that sloppiness really held, held us back and understandably put the focus on midfield where it's, it's, I guess it's struggling with your two midfielders isn't the end of the world. Sorry, with your two midfielders out in Casemiro and Ericsson and we're very hopeful that Ericsson will come back for the Everton game would be would be brilliant. Obviously Casemiro will be back after that as well. Struggling with those two unavailable, it's not it's not a crime, but I think what is a, a justified concern is to what extent it's highlighting the weaknesses elsewhere in the team and the lack of the properly defined system or style of play. Look, I... When we have, we have both our, our starting midfielders out at the moment for different reasons. Casemiro obviously injured Ericsson with a long-term injury. I think it's, it's completely understandable that especially in that area of the pitch, there is going to be some amount of drop-off. Every, every team in the world would experience the same thing. You only have to look at Arsenal, for example, when they came to Old Trafford without Thomas Partey in there, with Lokonga in, in, the, in midfield instead, they struggled. The difference though is... You can't allow those two players, as important as they are, like you mentioned, A, to completely change the way that you approach a game. There should be some semblance of, this is the way that this Manchester United team plays football, no matter who's on the pitch. And it also can't stop the rest of the team performing to the same level. And that, I think, is what has been so disappointing in general when United have played, especially without Casemiro this season, but especially you know the last two or three games, really, that it feels like though yes that you know the midfield is obviously massively important but that shouldn't that shouldn't be stopping other players from playing at the level they have for the rest of the season and yeah. yet it seems like the entire team has taken a massive step back but then it's because one of the key things we praise Tanag for well we have all season is that finally it looked like 
he'd, he'd created a United team where the players were covering each other's weaknesses rather than exposing them, which is, I think, what we had a lot under Solskjaer, where particularly the defence, it was most notable in Solskjaer's final few months that they were kind of exposing each other's weaknesses rather than covering for them. Tenag had changed that. And I think without Casemiro and, and Eriksen, I think we can cope without one of them. It, we haven't really found that solution. And again, it's it's putting square pegs in round holes and everything seems a bit off. And, and so it's really noticeable everyone's weaknesses in terms of Fernandez's sloppiness in possession becomes more noticeable. And the impact that has is far greater because when he concedes possession, it's deeper. And then Casemiro is not there to clean up either. Varane and Martinez are left with a much harder job. The fullbacks look worse because the option that they have in McTominay is is so much poorer than Casemiro or Ericsson, not just in terms of what happens when he receives the ball, but the positions he picks up aren't as good as Casemiro's and the space he can manage to work himself in. Those are just a couple of examples, I think. I think you then find differences in in the, the, the options don't seem to just fit as well together. Anthony looks even more frustrating than he normally does because he's kind of... At, without that midfield, he seems to be a bit at odds with Rashford in terms of the, the way he's so indecisive on the counter-attack and he seems to lack the confidence to take that final step and then get the ball in for Rashford to, to tap home. He, he seems to kill the momentum of attacks too much. I think Sancho does something similar as well. So it's it's that, it, yeah, it's, it's everyone's weaknesses have been exposed without Casemiro, which, I mean, just... Uh, that's exactly why we were praising him so much earlier in the season, isn't it? It is. But again, like, as great as Casemiro is, I don't think there's any excuse for the re- the rest of the team falling off a cliff to the extent that they have. You know, I don't expect us to play as well without Casemiro in the team. I don't think anyone does. But our win percentage without him, I think, is, is down to like 30%. Like, that, that's, ri- that, that's ridiculous. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. It's ridiculous. And I think Tenag needs to show that he's capable of managing it better. I mean, I trust him <laughs> kind of unrelentingly, but if if we're being, if we're holding him to very high standards, which he set himself, he needs to work a way out for this team to do better. But the, the counter argument is it's the first season, the investment in the summer was great, but in January was not. He's had hard luck with Ericsson's injury and then Casemiro's extended suspension. But crucially, his first season and a first season in which there's been pretty much no time on the training ground. And so the the criticism I've just laid out is that United don't really seem to have a a Ten Hag style of play yet. Everything's, it's all about pragmatism getting result. And so it kind of makes sense when your key players drop out that the the weak point that then is added, because there's not that style of play isn't ingrained yet, it kind of makes sense that performances drop off more than they might do in another season after another season. Yeah, I think Ten Hag has been dealt probably the hardest possible hand you could be given as a first season manager at a top club, playing more games than any other team in Europe with one of the thinnest squads that has been made thinner by you know injuries and suspensions to key players throughout the season. At the same time, though, I don't think there is a, an excuse for the performances dropping off to the extent that they have without Casemiro throughout the season. And, and to be honest, it's not, it's not just without Casemiro. Even with him, we've struggled away from home all season. But I, I think, especially with this suspension, given that it was four games with an international break in between, I think you would hope that we would come into this game with a better plan for how to cope yeah. without him. 
I understand the players, you know, a lot of the players weren't in, uh, at Carrington over the break. They were obviously all away on international duty, but Ten Hag and the coaches were there. They had time to sit down and plan for how we would cope with these next couple of games. And it was disappointing to me to see that we came out seemingly without much of a plan in that case. You know, even if, even if we'd have just said, you know, okay, without Casemiro in the team, we aren't going to be able to play out from the back like we want to. So like against Barcelona, when we also thought the same thing, we're just going to play really direct. We're going to play balls up to Veghorst, try and get the midfield high up the pitch and try and win second balls, make this game scrappy. Fine. You know, there, there was nothing like that. I know that we don't have the most defined sense of how we play at the moment, given the way the season has kind of panned out and the amount of games we've had to get through. But there are still tweaks that you can make to, to deal with not having Casemiro in a better way than we have done. Agreed. But I, I, also, though, I, I also do want to say that even with Casemiro, the away form is a concern. And I think there have been very few, like we, there have been very few things, I think, throughout the season that have made us concerned because even when things have gone badly, it's felt like a bit of a one-off. Like you and I, Harry, always say that, you know, we always try to not get too high in the good times and too low in the bad times because often the truth is somewhere in between. And even after the Liverpool game, you know, one of the most embarrassing defeats in United's history, you know, we kind of came back and said, this was terrible, but you play this game, you know, 20 more times, we'd never lose that 7-0. To be honest, I was more concerned by this performance than I was by the Liverpool one. Because this, I felt like you could play this game 20 times and we would never do better than 2-0. This felt like a 4-5-0 kind of performance. <clears throat> and we've got a little bit lucky that it hasn't ended up with that. And I think away from home, that has been a bit of a pattern. There's been, I was, I was looking at United's stats away from home this season, right? There have been, off the top of my head, I think five or six occasions when our expected goals has been less than one. Mm. I know expected goals doesn't tell you everything, but as a top team, I understand you're not going to go away from home and dominate every single game, especially at this point in Ten Hag's time at United. But too often we're not even offering any kind of threat, even on the counter-attack. And that is a concern. Is that not linked to what we've been speaking about and the fact that, that the, the, our, our way of playing isn't ingrained? And I don't think we... I think a few times this season we've picked out a, a particular kind of patterns of attack and gone, oh, actually that, that looks really good and that's kind of something new. But they've not been entirely consistent, I don't think. And I think especially in that four or five weeks before the internationals where most of it was great. And then the last couple of weeks we looked tired and poor and the performances were bad, even though we got a few wins. Is it not the case that because those things aren't ingrained and it's, it's not well practiced enough when we go away from home and it's a, a more difficult challenge, it's kind of, it feels like we're just putting fires out for most of the games and then hoping that we can kind of produce a goal with our own quality. Yeah, I, I think we are still living in that world. But at the same time, even with even if I was manager of Man United and did not speak to the players once in the build-up to a game, I would expect them to be able to go out there and create more than 0.4 expected goals across 90 minutes with the players that we have on the pitch. And, and, and that's, I think, the concern that I have is that away from home, I don't expect that we're going to go and dominate every single game, but I do expect that we are a threat, at least on the counter-attack, and that seems to have sort of gone a little bit. I think one of the key concerns as well that we've not mentioned yet is the fact that the players came out after and said we weren't, I mean, Ten Hag said this as well, that we needed to be, that Newcastle beat us on, I mean, effectively that Newcastle beat us on passion and the players seem to be saying a similar thing. 
which is some people will appreciate their honesty. Other people will think, well, what's the point of saying it? You just, you can't do that. At some point in the 90 minutes, you have to get yourself together and, and match them for work rate and, and determination. And they seem to be admitting that they hadn't done that. And that is a real concern because one of the key positives this season to, to this point has been the change in mentality that has seen us get through some difficult away games and some difficult home games and come out with wins. And they seem to be saying, yeah, well, that mental weakness really is still there. We saw it at Anfield, of course, and maybe it's brought it back a bit. But in another game, it's been evident again. Well, and this was arguably worse because I think at Anfield, at Anfield, the, the, the mentality became a problem after we were already very down in the game. Yeah. And we spoke about that at the time, that in terms of mentally, how you deal with setbacks, that was one of the hardest sort of set of circumstances you could ever face. This was different in that I felt like we weren't mentally up for the game, even at nil-nil, and I'm really right from the first whistle. And, you know, it is, it is always a, a curious thing, I think, when players come out after the game and sort of admit that they were lacking in that department. It's sort of like, well, if you recognised it, and, and I get that it's a hard thing to shift because it is so not arbitrary, but it, it's obviously difficult to sort of put your finger on why that is and how you change it. Mm. But this United team, and we talked about this a lot this season, is now littered with leaders. You know, you look at Bruno Fernandes, Varane, Martinez, even Rashford, maybe not quite in the same way, but definitely a leader by example, you would say. There are enough leaders on that pitch to kind of take things by the scruff of the neck and say, look, we have to fix up. It, it, we even got to half time at nil-nil and yeah. You know, United have been great at making half-time adjustments throughout the season and, and yet we just didn't. And that, I think, is, is so disappointing. How do you recognise that but still carry on in the exact same way for the whole 90 minutes? Yeah, I think he goes back to the post-Anfield point where he said maybe this is one of the games that we'll look back on in 18 months or two years or even six months and think, and when a certain player is sold, think, ah, oh, maybe that decision was made yeah. in Ten Hag's head around spring, early spring 2023. Um, and the save might be true with the Newcastle game. Uh, we'll, we'll have a guess the player clue and then we'll talk about Ten Hag's subs because I think some attention should be put on him. Well, I mean, we've spoken about kind of some weaknesses from his point of view, but those subs were odd and we'll answer a question from one of our patrons. But I'm setting the clues for Jack this week and your first clue is, first clue of three, is I am probably the most underrated or at least underappreciated striker in Premier League history. I'm probably the most underrated or underappreciated striker in Premier League history, which is a, a little okay. difficult because it's obviously subjective, but I wonder if there's any any names floating around your head before we move on. There are a few, honestly. One that immediately comes to mind is Louis Saha. I, I don't know if you would go so far as to say in Premier League history, because I know like Wayne Rooney famously said that Saha was his favourite strike partner to play with. And he gets a lot of good... He has a very good reputation amongst teammates. I don't know if you would say in Premier League history for him, though. Dwight York and Andy Cole both pop into my head, I think, as two players that probably aren't quite appreciated as much as they should be, given how good they were for those few years together. I mean, Solskjaer too, but I don't think... I think just because of his role in some of the biggest goals at United, I don't think he would quite fall into that category. That, that's, okay. that's my my thoughts for now. Obviously, not enough to to guess with... With any gusto, yeah. Um, Honestly, right, even Van Nistelrooy, I think Van Nistelrooy is rated yeah. a lot higher than that, but I think Van Nistelrooy should be rated higher than he is, but I don't think it's because you would say he's one of the most underrated in history. Because Arsenal fans have too much 
say in these <laughs> in these things, at least in the online world. So they will never rate Van Nistelrooy that highly. I like, I enjoyed his, I haven't watched the full overlap interview with Van Nistelrooy yet, but I enjoyed the quick fire questions. I forgot what a lovely voice he has. Yeah. Is what I thought when I, f- I first started. He's just, yeah, he's a fucking great voice. Ten Hag subs quickly, because we haven't got too much longer to to dwell on this. They were baffling. They came at a time when we just seemed to start getting something together at 1-0. And I think he could have brought any three players on and you would have thought three changes now with only eight minutes or so of normal time left. Is that is that sensible? And then the changes he did make to take both of our centre-backs off and it just, yeah, it was odd. What did you think watching on TV? I really didn't get it, honestly, at all. Um, I thought the first set of subs, I thought the first set of subs made sense. Of, they were know? the obvious ones yeah. and they could have come earlier. Yeah, 100%. To me, I was surprised we didn't make a change at half time. But I, and I think we would have done if Martial's fitness was less of a concern. But I think probably yeah, worried about him. That's exactly what minutes. I said actually at half time was if Martial had played recently, he would yeah. be coming on now. I'm, I'm pretty sure. But then the, the last sub, so a few things. Firstly, I don't think, tactically, I don't really think it made sense because obviously at that point you're chasing the game. And this is a bit of a trap that I think coaches in general fall into a bit too much, which is that when you're chasing the game, the sort of obvious thing to do seems to be, well, I'll just get as many attacking players on the pitch and as few defensive players on the pitch as possible. And you kind of throw stuff at the wall and hope that it sticks. And while I understand that that is kind of the natural reaction, I don't think it really makes sense because you look at it from United's point of view, we then went to some sort of three at the back with like Shaw, Lindelof and Dallow in this three at the back after taking both Varane and Martinez off and only bringing Lindelof on as another defender. Okay, fine. You're now three at the back, which in theory is a more attacking formation, but you're also now forcing Shaw and Dallow to stay much further back than they would do normally. And in the case of Shaw in particular, one of our most creative players on the pitch. I don't want Shaw stuck in our own half or on the halfway line. I want him on the, around in and around Newcastle's box. You know, that's where he's so dangerous. You only have to look at our comeback against Fulham in the FA Cup a couple of weeks ago to see that. You know, he gets to the byline, pulls the cross back for Sabitzer's uh, second for our second goal, Sabitzer's goal. So it was it was very odd in that, even in just from that sense, even tactically. But I also didn't really understand bringing both Varane and Martinez off when I saw Lindelof about to come on, I, I thought he might be coming off for Varane just because Varane is always a little bit of an injury concern. You know, maybe you thought he was getting a bit leggy, wanted some fresh legs back there. But bringing Martinez off as well didn't seem to make any sense to me, especially, again, at a time when you're trying to tra- chase the game. Surely you'd want Martinez's range of passing on the pitch to be able to you know, help us get through what was probably well, going to be quite a deep Newcastle block. With what you're saying about Shaw... That's then taking Shaw and Martinez out of the game in that attacking sense, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And even though they are both defenders on paper, actually, you know, I would certainly put Shaw and probably Martinez in as more creative players for us than any of the midfield options that we had on, on Sunday. <laughs> that, says, that says a lot. I, I was also surprised earlier than that. I was surprised actually that Fred didn't come on yeah. sooner. I, I, I understood McTominay starting because I, I think the... Part of the sort of thought behind that was protecting against the aerial threat from Newcastle. And yeah. that was a threat throughout the game. We obviously ended up conceding from that with McTominay still on the pitch. But I thought, especially after seeing how the first half went, and then after going 1-0 down, I really thought that Fred would come on because with McTominay and Sabitza in there, we weren't really benefiting from what should be a little bit more quality on the ball from Sabitza over Fred. 
And we were massively losing out in just a bit of dynamism in midfield that I think Fred really would have brought to the table. I thought he would come on, you know, around 65 minutes. Mm, yeah, agreed. It's, I mean, I, I don't think there's much more to say than to point out the obvious kind of strange parts of it. Um, I don't think we can kind of take any overarching conclusions from them because I think earlier in the season we criticised Ten Hag's uh, timing of subs sometimes and the choices and then at least for the few months before yesterday we then kind of did the opposite and he made some massively game-changing match-winning substitutions and tactical changes and all looked good and then yesterday I just think Sunday against Newcastle was a bad day for him I think he made some wrong decisions which is only natural in the same way that players make wrong decisions he just needs to <laughs> please don't do it again Eric <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the, the, probably the overarching question to end this discussion comes from one of our patrons, Marek Garbowski, who says, "Who says are we running out of steam or is this defeat simply showing a serious lack of depth? Champions League place is no longer as comfortable as it looked a few weeks ago. So what would your immediate reaction be as a manager to this obvious slump in United's form? I think we are running out of steam. Whether it's a fatal running out of steam yet, I don't think it's clear. And it partly depends on how for example, Tottenham responds to Antonio Conte sacking, how Liverpool do in these final weeks of the season, and even how Brighton and Brentford do, um, and Fulham. There's lots of teams waiting there to pounce on any kind of mistake. I think it's clear we're running out of steam, and this is what we spoke about going for all four competitions and putting everything into all of them was going to have an effect. It was about how, just see how much we can do. And it's an approach that Ten Hag gone for, it absolutely paid off with the League Cup. And that makes this end of the season so much less pressurised than it otherwise would be because you think, and I don't think this will happen, but say United lost to Brentford and Everton this week, that would be four, that would be five bad Premier League games in a row because at the moment we've lost two of our last three. We drew the other one to Southampton with the red card, if I remember correctly. The other being Liverpool 7-0 and Newcastle 2-0. So you lose a couple more this week and suddenly five bad league games in a row and, and then without that League Cup, then the pressure really starts to kick in again. But Ten Hag's built up that level of trust and that safety net already, which is the reward and a just reward for what he's done so far. But yeah, we're running out of steam and... It's just about getting to the end of the season and and seeing where it can take you. I think what's what's your immediate... I think it reflects the lack of squad depth, absolutely. So it's not a Ten Hag fault. And I don't think we would have... I think a lot of what we did pre-international break was a result of confidence and momentum. And we wouldn't have had that if he'd rotated more, I think. So I think he probably approached it in the right way. What would the step be now? It's very hard to say. He's got to just—he's got to get a bit of belief and authority back in this team, and remind them of the feeling that they had after beating City and after beating Barcelona and after winning a trophy, and say what you need to have some conviction in your play and go and beat Brentford and, and Everton. And so if you beat these, win these two games at home this week, it all changes again. It's definitely clear that we're running out of steam, and we said that over the international break in the last episode that we thought the rest of this season might be a little bit of a slog. I think it's still possible that both things can be true in that I think it can simultaneously be the case that we are running out of steam and that the Newcastle game was an aberration in terms of how bad we were. You know, I'm not expecting our performances between now and the end of the season mm. to ever get up to the level that they were in that sort of immediate post-World Cup 
period that sort of culminated, I guess, in like the Barcelona victory. That really, to me, is the last time yeah. United played really well. But, you know, since then, we've also still then, you know, won the League Cup final, beaten Fulham in the FA Cup, you know, looked really good or quite good anyway in the first sort of half an hour against Southampton. Like there are, it is, United still can play well, even though we're running out of steam. The, the challenge is to make sure that we don't drop to the, the level that we were against Newcastle again. And I don't think we, we really will. You know, we've also seen us steamroll Real Betis, for example, 4-1 at home. You know, so we are still capable of playing at a good level. I think, you know, I think what you said, Harry, about upping the conviction level when the team is is a key one, I think, on the ball. We just seem to, everything seems very, very disjointed. I would be tempted if I was Ten Hag to put Rashford up front for the next game. I, I'm not one of these people that blames everything mm-hmm. on Veghorst. I think he's actually done a, a really good job for us generally but I do think that there is there it are definitely really limits limited. to yeah exactly exactly he's not, and it, and it he's was, not good enough to play for United even yeah. though he's given it everything and it, it was I think it was fine in the first sort of 10 games or so that he was playing because the rest of the team was playing at a good enough level that actually just having his off the ball work was a big enough sort of benefit that it was okay and we could rely on other players to sort of carry the load in attack I think, I mean, obviously you'd like to play Martial up there, but assuming he's not fit, I'd be tempted to get Rashford up top, get Sancho on the left. I mean, this is where having Garnacho would be huge because then you could yeah, play Garnacho on the left and have a bit more. Sunday as well. Yeah. So that is, I think, key, but that is, I think, something that I would do to try and just give us, everything just feels so slow and sluggish in this United team now. I think we need a bit more dynamism, a little bit more ability on the ball. And I think doing that might, might provide that uh, that option that we need. And you'd expect Casemiro and Aaron Eriksson to be back in the next, well, obviously we know when Casemiro is coming back, but we'd expect to be able to possibly even start the two together within the next fortnight. And then it, it, it really is a different team. Well, it might it so, will probably come, well, Casemiro is yeah. definitely back after the Everton game. I'm actually not sure when our next game is after that, but that, that might be the Europa League. That's the next game after that, yeah. Sevilla. Yeah, yeah. Sevilla and then I cannot remember the game in between that too many games at the moment but and this is why uh, this is why well, I, I was going to say as you would the, the one after Sevilla is Notts Forest away uh-huh. but I was going to say after after you mentioned about you know it depends how Spurs and Brighton react the it, top four is still very much in our own hands because we still have to go and play Spurs yeah. and Brighton away before the end yeah. of the season and so we obviously just played Newcastle yes our away form is a concern but you go away and you beat those, you win those two games and top four is all but sewn up, you would think. Yeah, yeah. All right, guess the player, clue two. The first one being, as a reminder, because it's been a little bit of time, the first clue was, I'm probably the most underrated or underappreciated striker in Premier League history. And your clue two is, I am 18th in Manchester United's all-time goal-scoring charts. Oh. I'm not expecting you to have memorised them number by number. I think the, the general point of the clue is, He's not near the top of United's, but he is one of the most underappreciated Premier League strikers ever. Okay. Well, I actually know that section of the United top goalscorers list better than probably at any other point in my life because of when Rashford scored his 100th goal. We talked Mm. about it a little bit in his place in that list. And I remember, I'm pretty sure Rashford got to 19th with like his 102nd goal. Because I remember there being a big gap that there's no one in, other than Rashford who scores between 100 and 120 goals for United, which is odd. Yeah, 
you're correct in that. And so I know that it's it's going to be around that range. Someone scored about 120 goals. So if I think about the names that I had, it's definitely not Saha. He scored way less than that. Dwight York also scored less than that. He just wasn't at United long enough. He's probably around 50, if I had to guess. Van Nistelrooy is much higher than that. He's at like 150. So I think unless there's someone that I've completely forgotten that's underrated that I haven't even thought about, which would be quite quite funny that he's so underrated that he hasn't even popped into <laughs> my head, I think I'm going to have to guess Andy Cole. So tempting to just change the answer now. The <laughs> Dwight York had 66 goals. Rude Van Nistelrooy had 150. So that's incredible good knowledge. And the answer with 121 goals, so yes, very good knowledge, is Andy Cole. Nice. You're absolutely right. Honestly, if you'd have, if you'd have gave, given me those clues before Rashford scored his 100th goal earlier this season, I would have had no idea. It's only because I spent <laughs> half an hour just like scouring that list, finding it interesting when Rashford got his 100th. And I remember that that gap between 100 and 120. And I remember thinking it was really weird. Yeah, there is one. Sandy Turnbull scored 101 goals for United. But yeah, yeah. between 101 and 121, there's no one. Um, and the final clue, for if it's interesting, was I, uh, simple enough. I joined United in 1995 and left in 2001. Um, yeah, Andy Cole. And the reason he was on my mind is because in the away end at Newcastle on Sunday, on a beautiful summer's day ruined by the football, there was a good long chant of Andy Cole's song because of, of course, his association with Newcastle as well and the fact it was winding up their fans. <laughs> and, uh, but, but also it's a great song. It's got a bit of a revival recently for quite what reason I don't know. It's a great song, but uh, in Barcelona particularly, um, it was being sung constantly. Um, it's, it seems to have just been picked up again as kind of a, a, a regular. And I know Andy Mittens, who, who knows Andy well, sorry, Andy Mittens knows Andy <laughs> Cole well, um, has spoken about it before and said that uh, Cole hears it and is, yeah, is buzzing off it. It's nice. It's um, And particularly, yeah, given how underappreciated he's in, in Premier League history, it's, it's nice that these years on, it, it's, he's still having his name sung, which is great. Um, yeah. Full on, uh, two marks for you. And let's go into our Patreon Q&A where we're going to talk about Casemiro, uh, about De Gea, about reactions, mainly about Casemiro and De Gea. Okay, let's have some quick roundups and then we'll preview the Brentford game. There was a great chat in, in the Patreon Q&A about, I've, I, don't, I don't know how to summarise it, about Anthony... And um, <laughs> Anthony, Sancho and Casemiro and Bruno and why Casemiro's absence affects so much of the team and also why Anthony and Sancho might not look as good as they can be for another 18 months or so. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way of summarising it. Let's uh, let's have some roundups. You're um, leaving it in a lot of mystery. Hopefully that uh, will yeah. encourage people to sign up. Yeah, well, people should. It's uh, There's some great chats in there. Um, and you get to ask the questions. Uh, United women, top of the league. Leah Golton's double plus late strikes from Rachel Williams and Lucia Garcia took United to a 4-0 victory over bottom of the league, Brighton. Mark Skinner's Reds, having played one more game than Chelsea and Arsenal, are now clear at the top of the table. One point ahead of Chelsea and three ahead of Arsenal and with a significantly better goal difference than both as things stand. Add in a defeat for Manchester City, who are now three points behind with the same number of games played. And things are looking rosy for United. We spoke about how exciting these last few weeks of the season could be and it's absolutely still looking that way. Our next game is a break from all of that and it comes after a break for the internationals too. So no game for United Women this weekend. The next one will be an FA Cup semi-final 
against Brighton. A 5.15 kickoff on Saturday, the 15th of April. Tickets are available to go to that at Lee Sports Village. It's also going to be on BBC Two. United have beaten Brighton 4-0 in both league games this season, home and away, so will be overwhelming favourites for the game. But, of course, it's the FA Cup, so who knows what will happen. We're going to speak more about that game and the United women as a whole nearer the time, so next week or even next Thursday. As for the under-21s, there was an exciting game at Old Trafford on Friday. United and Arsenal's under-21s going head-to-head. The visitors took the lead through Kion Edwards, but United were level within four minutes. Uh, a really, uh, just a really, really brilliant Dan Gore assist. He intercepted a pass in his own box and then a good assertive run across the halfway line came turned back inside and just a perfectly wonderfully weighted and accurate clipped ball over the top of the defence to Matteo Mejia who stretched out with his right foot and directed it expertly into the far left side of the goal a few more chances for both teams mainly for Arsenal who were really good and deserved their first goal but not in the manner that they got it Eli Harrison having made two really good saves before stumbled in the Old Trafford turf and then Karen Edwards won the ball back and just tapped it in very easily it's not the first mistake Harrison's made this season you would have may remember me mentioning a couple of others he's made for the under 18s this was his under 21s debut it was also a debut for a couple of other players Jack Kingdon made his debut Louis Jackson made his first start and it was Matthew Mejia's first goal at this level as well and Ethan Williams as well making a first under 21 start but yeah Harrison unlucky for the goal but then made another few good saves to make up for it um it's it was a stumble the the other goals he's conceded in this way he's made a mistake on the ball this was an unlucky one maybe just a lapse in concentration meant his his toe kind of got caught in the ground and Edwards pounced so um I think it's it's really difficult with goalkeepers because you almost there's a part of me that thinks it's quite positive for them to make mistakes like these at this age because it, it they're going to learn from them and they're going to get used to that feeling and and their mentality is going to improve. But he's a he's a very talented goalkeeper, Harrison. So his progress will be will be really interesting. No game for the under 18s this week. And Jack, what are the lone headlines? Biggest headline for the lone players was Alvaro Fernandez. He playing for Preston against Blackpool, got an assist in their 3-1 win. Been a good sort of month or so for Fernandez. Been talking a lot throughout the season about his bow to keep his place ahead of another former United Academy graduate, Robbie Brady. He has now sort of cemented that place a little um, and he's been repaying that faith shown in him by manager Ryan Lowe with some good performances capped off by that assist for Preston's goal yesterday, on Saturday, sorry, against Blackpool. Elsewhere, there weren't too many highlights. A uh, few players here and there. Charlie Savage, who's Forest Greenside, finally won their first game under Duncan Ferguson over the international break, by the way. They beat Sheffield Wednesday. He got 90 minutes again. He continues to play well down at Forest Green. Ethan Laird came back from injury. He's been out since mid-February with a, an ongoing hamstring in- injury. So he came back and played a few minutes and Ahmed played just under half an hour. He only returned from international duty on Friday, so wasn't given the start for Sunderland. Uh, further down, Ethan Galbraith and Charlie McNeil both started for Salford and Newport, respectively. But other than Alvaro Fernandez, no real highlights for United's low needs. Cholo Shuratiri's Bolton did win the Papa John's Trophy on Sunday at Wembley, but he was unfortunately ineligible to play because he'd already played for the under-21 side, the United's under-21 side, that is, earlier in the season. Mm. And Altrium almost made it to Wembley. They were... 1-0 up over Halifax in the FA Trophy semi-final, conceded in the 95th minute, then went to extra time, stayed at 1-1 and they lost on penalties 3-2. 
And the reason I mention that isn't just for an interest in random Manchester teams, but because Joel Hugo and Maxi Onidelli are on that kind of hybrid loan there. So is Sonny Aljofri, but Hugo and Onidelli actually played in this game. Um, so that's disappointing for them. But yeah, I think that's everything. Brentford on Wednesday, Jack. Uh, <laughs> we've we've kind of spoken about what, what we think needs to happen. Are you confident at all? Because it's at home, yes. I, yeah. I said that very unconfidently, but yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I am. Yeah, you did, yeah. Okay. Is there anything else? I mean, we've kind of spoken about before the break, we spoke exactly what, what we wanted to happen. I think it's, it's kind of dependent on how fit Ten Hag thinks Martial is, because if he is, probably would start him ahead of Horst and then Rashford wide. If not, then you might well have Rashford up front. Um, yeah. And you probably have Fred over McTominay. Yeah, I think so. Like, I think if I'm Brentford coming into this game, 100% my plan is to come in and as Brentford normally do, just put us under so much pressure when we have the ball at the back. We've shown that we have a big weakness against it. They obviously exploited that in the first game this season and I expect them to kind of do the same thing. So it wouldn't surprise me if, especially in the first of half an hour or so, I'll come off the back of a pretty damaging defeat if United do go a bit more direct and we, we don't try and play out from the back too much and try and get a bit more of a foothold in the game, that isn't really what you want to hear playing at home against a team that you feel like we should be beating. But I think that is the reality of where we are. I think stylistically, Brentford are, are a difficult team for us to play. But I think if we can get through that first sort of 20 or 30 minutes, more opportunities will start to open themselves up for us to you know enjoy a little bit more space and, and try and play through Brentford a little bit more. Yeah. Let's hope for a response. I think I'm looking forward to it still. I'm saying that because I'm sat in rare, glorious Manchester sunshine. But by the time Wednesday comes around, I think the sun's going in and it's going back to miserable <laughs> cloud and, and greyness again. At which point I might not be quite as looking forward to uh, uh, an evening match as I might otherwise be. But summer is is soon coming, soon around the corner. So that's a, a nice a nice feeling. Uh, anything else before we wrap up? Obviously, uh, throughout the week, people can find you on Twitter at, at UTD Tate, T-A-I-T. You can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 and the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. The Patreon Q&A was, was good today. If you're interested in listening to that, go to our Twitter. There's information about how to do that. It's a pound 50 a month. It's a kind of a, a pay-as-you-like scheme. So you can pay up to 20 quid a month if you'd really like to help the podcasts uh, be supported and, and help us kick on um, but yeah you can pay as little as a pound fifty a month it's a, a very small amount it massively helps what we're doing and you get ad free early release episodes with bonus Q&A's in so we think it's it's probably worth it um, but otherwise thank you very much for listening hope you have a brilliant week enjoy the sunshine if you've got anything any of it near you and enjoy United's game against Brentford on Wednesday until then goodbye Podcast Network.